this is Jeff Tom. I'm the, uh, well, which hat should I be today? I'll take my advocacy steering committee uh, co-chair hat along with uh, Clark Rockfall. So I am your uh, facilitator for this panel. And we're gonna be hearing today uh, some information about the Medicare low vision aid uh, concept and the, the bill proposal that we have, which is one of our legislative imperatives. So this information is very timely for those of you who have appointments in the next few days. And to provide us that information is Joe Mara, who is Director of Governmental Relations at the law firm of Powers, Piles, Sutter, and Burville. Now, Joe has repeatedly stressed the fact that he is not an attorney. And as a person who was an attorney for decades, I'm a little, you know, nonplussed by that. But nonetheless, um, you know, I think it's a badge of pride for Joe that he is not one. Um, his firm focuses on disability and rehabilitation issues, and they have various coalitions that they coordinate, including um, the one that we're going to talk about today, that is the uh, called the Medicare. Um, I'm losing my notes here. Uh, the Independence Through Enhancement of Medicare and Medicaid Services, or ITEM. So to talk to us about the item coalition and specifically about our Medicare low vision aid initiative, I present to you, Joe Mara. Joe? Well, thanks so much, Jeff. And uh, thanks everyone for having me. Uh, as Jeff mentioned, I'm at the Powers Law Firm here in DC. Uh, and uh, Jeff also mentioned, you know, we do do a lot of disability and rehabilitation work at our healthcare practice here. Uh, and as Jeff mentioned, we do operate a, a number of coalitions in the disability and rehabilitation space. Um, this afternoon, I'm going to talk about the, the one I'm, I'll focus on is the Independence Through Enhancement of Medicare and Medicaid, or the ITEM Coalition. Uh, and the ITEM Coalition has more than 90 national nonprofit organizational members, uh, including the American Council of the Blind. Uh, and the focus of the ITEM Coalition is increasing access to assistive devices and technologies for beneficiaries of federal programs uh, with a specific focus on Medicare and Medicaid. Um, so uh, thanks to you again for having me. Uh, looking forward to talking with you all and uh, hopefully answering some questions as well. So just to start off, uh, give you a little bit of background about the ITEM Coalition. Uh, ITEM was formed uh, more than a decade ago uh, to organize the voices of disparate groups representing consumers and providers, uh, aging organizations, disability organizations, uh, disability or disease condition specific organizations, rehabilitation organizations and providers, healthcare associations, uh, and really trying to unify that voice around access to assistive devices and technologies. Um, the initial impetus for the foundation of the coalition uh, was around mobility devices, and specifically the iBot wheelchair, which is a specific kind of wheelchair that was really taking a, a leap forward in terms of uh, improving and enhancing uh, mobility for people with uh, physical impairments. Um, but the coalition quickly expanded to take on a wider range of issues, and we're now not not any sort of particular disability focused. It's the, the wide range of people with disabilities and the assistive technologies that uh, can help people. Um, so we focus on the broad durable medical equipment benefit, uh, orthotics and prosthetics, uh, vision and hearing technology, and of course we're going to focus on vision technology today, uh, complex rehabilitation technology, telehealth, 
uh, and really any or all policies that impact uh, technology, access to technology, or the utilization of technology uh, for consumers with disabilities, illnesses, injuries, chronic conditions. Um, and over the past year, and what I'm going to focus on today, uh, the Adam Coalition has specifically had a, an effort around uh, trying to expand access to low vision devices. Uh, and that's, of course, the focus of today's session. Um, if you're interested, uh, you know, I'm always happy to answer questions about the Adam Coalition, uh, but please feel free to take a look at our website, which is www.itemcoalition.org. Uh, and there you can find information about the coalition, our membership our advocacy archives, and that's in, in particular what you may want to take a look at on a variety of different issues. So moving on to specifically low vision aids, um, just to give you a little bit of background, and of course, uh, for many of the people on the call today, this may be very familiar, but just want to make sure everyone has the sort of same background. Um, before 2008, uh, there was a different kind of access to low vision technology, specifically in Medicare. Um, as many of you probably know, despite the vast range of technology and assistive devices that are available for people who are blind or have low vision, uh, the Medicare program currently has a blanket prohibition on coverage for essentially all vision-related devices. There are a couple of minor exceptions, uh, particularly around uh, consumers with diabetic retinopathy uh, or if you've just had cataract surgery, but essentially Medicare covers almost no vision-related devices. Um, you may know that the Medicare statute originally signed into law in 1965 uh, specifically prohibits coverage for eyeglasses, uh, and it also prohibits coverage for hearing aids and dental services, uh, and that was originally just designed as a way to limit the Medicare benefit uh, when it was first being proposed. Um, obviously, as everyone knows, since 1965, there have been huge leaps forward in terms of vision technology uh, beyond just traditional eyeglasses or contact lenses that you might, you know, wear on your ears. Uh, Medicare policies, unfortunately, did not advance with the pace of innovation in technology. Um, but again, pre-2008, there was no specific coverage policy for low vision aids. Uh, when individual devices were being developed, either manufacturers or advocates uh, could go through the traditional Medicare coverage determination process, uh, and individual beneficiaries could try to seek coverage for themselves. Uh, there's an administrative appeals process in Medicare, uh, you could go through that process. It, it's lengthy. It's difficult. Uh, it's for many people not intuitive. It's not very necessarily consumer friendly, uh, but there was an opportunity for individuals to get Medicare coverage for a device that they might need. And there have been a, ver a variety of court cases, you know, allowing coverage for specific devices uh, for specific beneficiaries, but those were not expanded to general coverage policies. So now moving on to the situation uh, in 2008 and is still what we have now, what's called the Medicare Low Vision Aid Exclusion. So in 2008, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is the agency that administers the Medicare program, uh, they proposed a new regulation that would include the Low Vision Aid Exclusion. Uh, and this was essentially a regulatory opportunity, an interpretation of the Medicare statute that held that all devices, quote, irrespective of their size, form, or technological features that use one or more lens to aid vision or provide magnification of images for impaired vision uh, would qualify as eyeglasses, and so would be entirely and preemptively excluded from Medicare coverage. Um, this was proposed by CMS essentially unprompted. Uh, no one was asking for this. Uh, they just decided it was time to regulate this. And again, this was essentially determined anything that uses a lens and has to do with vision 
would be considered traditional eyeglasses and would not be non-covered under Medicare. Um, as, as I mentioned, this was proposed even though there have been several court decisions in the Medicare appeals system, uh, finding that Medicare did not exclude coverage for certain types of low vision aids. I think most of the court cases tended to focus on video magnifiers, which was one example of a widely used aid uh, at that time. Um, but Medicare essentially proposed the low vision aid exclusion and said, we're going to move past all of the court cases that have, you know, put out precedents for this. Uh, and we're going to make this expansive interpretation of the original statute. Um, that was proposed in 2008. There was a public comment period, as there always has to be with uh, proposed regulations. There was overwhelming stakeholder opposition. Uh, I don't believe there were really any comments in support of this proposal. Uh, disability groups, uh, organizations representing consumers with low vision, uh, manufacturers, uh, all kinds of organizations, including the Item Coalition, strongly opposed this with CMS laid out very detailed uh, arguments for why this was an inappropriate regulation and that CMS should not go forward with it. However, this was finalized in, 2008, in 2009, uh, essentially above all of these objections. Uh, if you look at the rule, uh, which is quite dense, uh, but CMS essentially says, we understand all of the arguments and we simply disagree and we're going to finalize this. Um, they ignored comments around the vast medical and functional benefits for low vision aids, uh, clear distinction between low vision aids and traditional eyeglasses, uh, and that there would be a disincentive for innovation and technology uh, if there was this categorical non-coverage, but it was finalized. So since 2009, Medicare beneficiaries have essentially been unable to access low vision aids uh, unless they pay out of pocket, uh, or you may be able to find some other funding source. So individual organizations have raised this issue with CMS time and time again, uh, made different arguments. There's new evidence coming out. There's new devices coming out. Uh, and CMS has essentially batted away all of those attempts so far. Um, but since then, there hasn't really been an organized effort to try to unify the low vision community and advocate before CMS to change this. Uh, and that's sort of where the item coalition came in. So back in late 2019, uh, you know, before uh, the COVID pandemic sort of upended everything, uh, some of the Item Coalition members had raised this issue with the steering committee uh, and wanted to revisit efforts to see if there would be any, any way to make progress on expanding coverage of low vision aids for Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, there were a variety of initial discussions we held. We actually held an in-person meeting back when uh, people were allowed to hold those. Uh, and we determined that you know, there was a lot of interest in this from the Item Coalition membership from other organizations and generally the low vision community. Uh, so since then, we've been hosting regular calls with what we're calling the low vision working group of the item coalition uh, and essentially trying to provide a unified coalition strategy to advance coverage. Uh, we have about 15 organizations involved in this uh, specific effort, uh, including the American Council of the Blind, which is of course has been a, a driving force in the coalition. Uh, we also have other organizations many of you may be familiar with or even may be involved with. Uh, on the provider side, we have the American Academy of Ophthalmology, the American Optometric Association. Uh, on the consumer representing side, we've got the Macular Degeneration Foundation, uh, the Association for the Education and Rehabilitation of the Blind and Visually Impaired, uh, the Blind and Veterans Association, uh, Prevent Blindness, the VisionServe Alliance, the Support Sight Foundation, uh, and we've got representatives from some of the manufacturers as well. Uh, the Vision Council, the Assistive Technology Industry Association, and others. So this group, we've sort of brought together all of these diverse perspectives uh, and trying to create that unified message before CMS, the administration, and Congress. 
So to lay out a little bit of our work so far, uh, we've had these regular meetings, uh, we've gotten groups together, we've got uh, consumers represented on the call, we've got advocates, the providers, the manufacturers, as I mentioned. Um, in 2020, we sort of laid a lot of the groundwork for engagement with the new administration and the new Congress. Um, we issued a position statement uh, signed by 12 of the leading vision organizations back in June of 2020. Uh, that was focused on urging CMS to rescind the existing low vision aid exclusion uh, and instead evaluate each device on its own, looking at the medical and functional purposes for any new device uh, or existing devices, uh, what benefits it would provide to, to Medicare beneficiaries, uh, and essentially make an individual determination. So the ask there was go back to the pre-2008 uh, situation, uh, the coverage environment. It was not everything that people wanted. There was still a lot of barriers to access for people with low vision, but at least there wasn't this categorical non-coverage. So sort of the first step that this group has identified as a way to make progress is trying to roll back that 2008 low vision aid exclusion. Uh, and that was the focus of our position statement. Uh, I believe uh, ACB may have sent around some of the outlines for this presentation, so you can find links to all of these documents uh, or feel free to take a look at the Item Coalition website. Um, most recently, some of the, the more detailed work that we've done uh, is detailed comments that we submitted the first week of this year, back in January, uh, on the 2021 DEMIPOS rule. Uh, and so some of you may, may or may not know, um, the Medicare structures the benefit for durable medical equipment under what's called the DEMIPOS benefit. Uh, and that stands for durable medical equipment, prosthetics, orthotics, and supplies. Uh, and again, that covers essentially everything that's sort of a medical equipment piece, anything that's not professional services or a hospital benefit uh, tends to be covered under this DEMIPOS benefit. And so while low vision aids are currently considered to be not part of the DEMIPOS benefit because Medicare says they're non-covered, uh, these aids would fall under this benefit if Medicare decided to lift that coverage exclusion. So each year, CMS puts out a proposed regulation outlining payment rules and policies for the DEMIPOS benefit, uh, updating old policies, proposing new policies uh, and for the coming year. And in fact, that was the vehicle in 2008 where the low vision aid exclusion was originally proposed. Uh, so in our comments on the rule, uh, that rule did not actually touch on low vision aids in the proposed rule, but we decided this was a, a opportunity to weigh in on this issue with CMS and sort of raise the profile of the issue, make sure that the staff working on this rule was aware that not this has continued to be an issue for over a decade now. Uh, it continues to be extremely important for the community uh, and that CMS essentially needs to be thinking about it. So we outlined a variety of different areas in our comments, uh, some of the history on the low vision aid exclusion and why we disagreed with it uh, as a procedural sense, uh, why we thought it was an overly expansive reading of the statute, uh, some of the legal precedents for why we think CMS essentially made the wrong decision, uh, and then talked about the benefit of low vision aids, you know, outlining what are the medical and functional benefits, uh, what are people able to do with the help of low vision aids that they might not be able to do otherwise or may not have a, as much function otherwise, uh, some of the medical benefits that are sort of, or medic medical problems that are sort of avoided by having low vision aids. Uh, for example, there's evidence that uh, falls are decreased, uh, depression is decreased, things like that. Uh, and outlining all of the evidence. Obviously, since 2008, there's been a lot of new clinical research on the impact of low vision aids. Uh, and while we think Medicare made the wrong decision back then, we also wanted to 
outline that there's been a lot of new evidence since then that we think make, makes our argument stronger. Uh, so we outlined that in the Demi post comments. Again, those are available on the website if anyone wants to sort of delve into the detailed regulatory side. Um, but our main ask for CMS was to take back this rule that we disagree with, go back to the pre-2008 situation for coverage, and then we can work with the agency to try to figure out how to affirmatively advance coverage so that more beneficiaries are able to access low vision aids. Um, that comment letter was supported by a wide range of groups, uh, had a lot of perspectives involved in drafting that and developing those comments. Uh, and again, we think it was a, a sort of succinct uh, encapsulation of our cohesive message that's uniting the stakeholders in the vision community and amplifying our voice with policymakers. So now moving on to what's next. Uh, obviously, it's 2021. We've got a new Congress. We've got a recently inaugurated new administration. Uh, and we think that there's a real opportunity to advance coverage for low vision devices. Um, obviously, you know, the Biden administration, uh, the Biden campaign during the campaign had made disability issues a priority. Uh, they've made some interesting hires in terms of staffing up people that are disability policy experts, uh, both taking from Congress and people from the broader community. So we think there's a, a friendly uh, ear in the administration for advancing these issues. So there's really two key tracks that we identify uh, with our coalition for making progress. Uh, the first of those is the regulatory side uh, via CMS, and the other side is the legislative side uh, via Congress. Uh, and Jeff mentioned that earlier with ACB's legislative imperatives. I'll get to those in just a minute. Uh, in terms of CMS, CMS under its own authority has the ability to rescind the low vision aid exclusion. They also have the authority to decide that low vision aids are covered, whether they do that uh, categorically by deciding, you know, we misinterpreted the eyeglass exemption. We think low vision aids should be part of the medical Medicare benefit. Uh, or just deciding on individual devices, you know, this specific magnifier we think is covered, uh, or a prism is covered, or a CCTV, any individual device. And sort of either of those options would be better than the current complete blanket non-coverage policy. So given the significant turnover in the staff at the Department of Health and Human Services and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, we think there's a great opportunity to educate a whole lot of new staff on this issue. Um, again, CMS is sort of that first target for regulatory action, uh, since it's much easier to get them to just change their mind uh, on a rule or propose a new rule rather than going through an actual bill in Congress. Um, many of you may have heard that President Biden recently announced his nominee for the CMS administrator, uh, Chiquita brooks Lashur. Uh, it is not yet clear exactly what the timeline is for getting her into place in the agency. Uh, actually, just today, they are holding the confirmation hearings for the Secretary for Health, Health and Human Services, uh, Javier Becerra. Uh, but CMS is continuing to be staffing up. They're hiring lower level staff. There's some positions still yet to be named, um, but there's gonna be a lot of opportunities for staff that may not be aware of this issue to learn about it and understand why it's so important for the community. Uh, as I mentioned, there's also been a lot of key disability hires uh, in the administration more broadly, uh, in particular on the Domestic Policy Council, which is sort of the White House body that advises the president on a variety of domestic policy issues. Uh, they've hired some of the key former Senate staff working on disability issues uh, who the item coalition has worked with in the past and have a good relationship with. Uh, and so we think, again, there's a lot of friendly ears in the administration. Um, this is a little bit of the sort of inside baseball of CMS, but I should also note that there's been some changes to the structure of CMS and in particular, the offices in charge of the MEPOS policy. 
Uh, there's been the creation of a new group called the Technology Coding and Pricing Group. Uh, and essentially we're viewing that as, as a recognition by CMS that they need to shake up the way uh, some of these coverage determinations are made. So with this new office, there's some new staff there as well. Uh, and those will be some of our key targets in terms of educating people on the issues uh, uh, regarding low vision aids. So over the coming weeks and months, uh, the Adam Coalition, along with representatives from ACB, uh, all of you are probably well familiar with Clark Rockfall and the great work he does, uh, will be meeting with CMS, uh, White House, HHS staff, at, at both the leadership and the more down staff level. Uh, and we're going to be urging them to retract the low vision aid exclusion and, and move towards a more progressive coverage policy for low vision aids. Uh, and then, of course, the last piece is Congress. Uh, and I'll just briefly touch on this. I know we want to make sure we have time for questions and answers. Uh, in Congress, there's been sort of two areas in which we're trying to make progress. The first is just education, making sure that the new members of Congress are aware of this issue, uh, members of Congress with jurisdiction over healthcare and disability issues, uh, in particular, the Medicare program, making sure they understand what the current situation is, uh, how much of a problem it is for beneficiaries with low vision who aren't able to access these devices, uh, and how to sort of reactivate some of our past congressional champions. Um, I should also note that more broadly, there may be more efforts, especially with the new democratic control of both chambers, uh, to revisit the question of should the Medicare benefit uh, be expanded entirely by creating a new vision benefit. Um, many of you may have heard that last Congress, House Democrats introduced a bill uh, called HR3, which is focused on lowering drug prices. Uh, and that would have created about uh, $450 billion in savings uh, by negotiating the prices for prescription drugs and other drug pricing policies. And in last Congress, of course, the Democrats only held the House. So this was sort of a House-only effort. Uh, but they had drafted the bill to say, let's use some of those savings from the prescription drug policies to actually expand the Medicare benefit. And so they had proposed to create a vision benefit, a hearing benefit, and a dental benefit in Medicare, uh, all of which are currently excluded. That legislative text did not specifically address low vision aids, uh, but of course, if the Medicare statute is changed by legislation, uh, the eyeglass exemption, which is how CMS interpreted the ban on all low vision aids, that would be removed. So that would certainly make a lot of progress, uh, and we're working to, with Congress to sort of make sure that staff is aware that if they do decide to revisit that question, uh, they should make sure to explicitly affirm that low vision aids should be covered. Uh, and then the last piece, which I know Jeff mentioned, uh, is one of the bills that ACB has been at the forefront of supporting, uh, and that's the Medicare Coverage of Low Vision Aids Demonstration Act. I'm sorry, Demonstration of Coverage for Low Vision Devices Act. Uh, this has been a bill that's been supported in the past by Representatives Carolyn Maloney and Gus Bilarakis. Uh, and what this would do is require the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to have a five-year what they call demonstration project essentially a pilot project where they put forward coverage for low vision aids on a sort of temporary basis, on a trial basis to understand what the impact would be. Now, that's not the same as expanding coverage entirely. Uh, not necessarily all ben beneficiaries would be able to access low vision devices under that demonstration. Uh, it's limited and of course it could expire at the end of five years. But that would be a, an important step forward for two reasons. One is that some beneficiaries would get access to those devices, and that's really crucial. Uh, of course, you know, some access is better than no access, which is what the situation currently is. Uh, and then, of course, the other point is that at the end of those five years, uh, the bill would require Congress or CMS and Congress to evaluate what the impact was. How much did the Medicare program spend 
but also how important was it for beneficiaries? What was the benefit to their health and function? Um, and then CMS would an analyze that, evaluate it, and hopefully, at least according to the advocates, uh, they would say, this is a worthwhile program. We should expand this demonstration and make it part of the full Medicare benefit. So that bill has been an ACB priority for some time. Uh, it has not yet been reintroduced in the new Congress, uh, but we expect it will be soon. Uh, and many of you who are participating in the legislative seminar and in uh, virtual visits with the Hill, maybe talking about this bill, may have talked about it before. Uh, it would be a great step forward in terms of expanding some coverage. Uh, but again, that doesn't mean that all these other efforts with CMS, with broader Congress, uh, those are going on at the same time as well. So essentially we're working to find out any way that we can to expand coverage for low vision devices. Uh, and there's a lot of different opportunities. We think there's a lot of different avenues for it, um, but especially with the new Congress and the new administration, we think 2021 is a great opportunity for progress. Uh, and just on behalf of myself, I'd like to say it's been a pleasure working with ACB and its representatives, as well as the other members of the vision community through the item coalition uh, to try to advance coverage for low vision devices. So we will continue to work through the coalition. Uh, we'll continue to hopefully keep the ACB members informed uh, through Clark and some of the other organizations uh, and keep you informed of the new developments. Uh, what are the opportunities for individual advocates to weigh in on this? How can you support these efforts? Uh, and we really do think there's an opportunity to make good progress and, and hopefully we'll have some success this year uh, in making sure that Medicare beneficiaries are able to access these devices. And I think that covers most of what I wanted to talk about. So happy to take any questions. Okay, so I'm going to use my power as having the facilitators role to ask the first question. Um, thank you first for the very thorough and informative um, explanation of the situation. And my question is this, um, do you think that as part of our discussions with um, members of Congress or their staffs, that in addition to talking about the bill, it might be appropriate to at least mention the possibility of them, you know, writing to or communicating with CMS on the issue of regulatory change, as you have explained it, by removing the, you know, either removing the low vision aid exception or doing something more broadly. Absolutely. That, uh, that's a great question. And I think the answer is unequivocally yes. Uh, members of Congress should absolutely be aware of this issue. It should be educated on this issue by consumers. Uh, and they should be aware that they can, they can influence CMS, uh, even if they're not making a, a piece of legislation move forward. So obviously, as, as we mentioned, CMS does have the authority to change the low vision aid exclusion on their own. Now, CMS doesn't typically tend to just decide to change their past policies without some pressure. So a lot of that is from the community, from advocates, from beneficiaries, uh, but it's also very important for Congress to weigh in. So members of Congress may not want to put forward a bill that tells CMS what to do uh, unless they have to. And so usually when an advocate goes in and talks about, uh, with a member of Congress and talks about something that CMS is doing wrong uh, in their eyes, the first question you usually get is, have you talked to CMS? Uh, what did they say about it? Um, and if CMS has decided they are not going to act on their own, congressional pressure can come in, in so many forms. So as Jeff mentioned in particular, uh, congressional letters is something we see a lot. Uh, members of Congress will write to the administrator of CMS or other leadership at the department and say, look, here's the problem. 
our, our constituents, our beneficiaries that we represent are having these barriers to access. They're not able to get the care they need, the devices they need. Uh, this is something that we think CMS should fix. And they write it as, of course, a very polite letter, but that is a, a significant form of pressure and CMS takes those letters seriously. So that's something that we have discussed at the Item Coalition, you know, whether we are gonna be trying to organize a, a broad letter from members of Congress uh, with a lot of signatures at the bottom and saying all of these different offices uh, are encouraging CMS to do this. But absolutely, as you're meeting with your members, make sure they're aware of the larger problem. Make sure they understand that CMS has the power to act. You know, you're supporting, you're asking them to support and sign on to the low vision de device demonstration bill. But absolutely, you should be asking your members of Congress to weigh in with CMS, let them know that uh, Congress cares about this issue and their constituents care about this issue. And remember to my fellow Californians who are going to the Hill that the new Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services is from California. So you might mention that to your member of Congress who certainly knows that fact. So um, I'm going to open it up now. Tabitha, you can unmute. Okay, hello. Um, thank Good you. Morning. That was very interesting. And um, I was just wondering, because you were focused, and I apologize if I'm diverting the focus of this session, but you talked primarily about um, Medicare. And I was wondering if these sorts of um, efforts to get low vision devices covered are also being made beyond Medicare. So Medicaid or private um, health insurance um, companies as well. Um, I don't know what kind of rules are in existence for those places, but um, obviously any coverage we could get for this kind of assistance would be great. Because um, I'm personally not on Medicare for another few years, <laughs> um, but I already need um, you know, assistive devices. Yeah, thank you, Tabitha. Uh, that's a great question. Um, part of the reason that we focus on Medicare uh, is because Medicare is sort of seen as the payer that sets precedence for other programs. Uh, Medicare is, of course, the, the largest healthcare payer in the country uh, by far. Um, and many times private insurance, uh, as well as Medicaid programs and other federal programs, sort of, uh, quote unquote, take their cue from Medicare. Now, Medicare always makes very clear that their policies are driven by the needs of Medicare beneficiaries and Medicare beneficiaries only. Medicare is not supposed to consider the fact that uh, private payers may have either indirectly or directly sort of copy and paste their coverage policies from Medicare, but they often do. Uh, and so there is sort of always a, a patchwork system of coverage for devices once you move outside of Medicare. I believe most private plans, uh, almost all Medicaid plans and most private plans do not cover low vision devices, although there may be some here and there. Again, uh, it differs based on your pay or your individual plan. Everyone knows how many uh, sort of ins and outs of individual insurance plans there are, but largely there is not covered for these aids. And we think a lot, there's not coverage for the aids. And we think a big part of the reason for that uh, is because Medicare doesn't cover them. Uh, again, a lot of, even the massive plans, your Blue Cross Blue Shield, your Aetna, any of the other uh, large healthcare plans, they tend to look at Medicare first to see if something's covered. They will occasionally go above and beyond, uh, but not always. So that's part of the reason why we've focused on Medicare so far. Uh, again, because there's this explicit exclusion that we think is preventing coverage, we know is preventing coverage, and we think lifting it would uh, make a big step forward. Certainly, uh, if Medicare does start to advance coverage for these devices, private plans and Medicaid plans would not be required to do so, uh, but we think that's 
typically in the past on, on all kinds of devices, uh, Medicare tends to be sort of the first domino to fall uh, and a lot of other payers take note of that. Um, but certainly there's a lot of uh, local groups, individual groups, consumer groups working on uh, either their state Medicaid plans or their private insurance plans to push for coverage. Uh, and we absolutely support those efforts. Um, again, we sort of are, can't tackle all of them at once because there's so many different plans, but we have found in the past that uh, sort of taking down Medicare coverage for something uh, does tend to have a ripple effect on other payers. So Tabitha, let me just posit an argument that I think is effective, not only in the Medicare sphere, but also with respect to going out in your own state and arguing um, under your Medicaid program for inclusion of low vision aids. Uh, and, and that is the argument that we have been making all along anyway, with respect to trying to maintain people um, aging in place and out of institutional settings and, and even more now with respect to allowing people to transition back from an institutional setting into the community. And low coverage of low vision aids can be an important component in ensuring that people are able to remain in their own homes um, by having more and more independence through, their, through it being able to do all those items of daily living that are so important remaining in your own home. So if you are considering um, some Medicaid advocacy, that's certainly an argument um, in the COVID-19 sphere that you might be able to use. Phone number ending in 106, you should be able to unmute. Hi, this is Charles from California. Earlier in your presentation, you indicated that uh, HR3 was introduced in the last session of Congress, but as I understand it, it died because Senate, the Senate did, didn't uh, pick it up. So is there any plans to introduce that bill again? And who, who, who is pushing that in Congress? And, you know, the, the, the idea is to, if you save money from drug purchases, you can apply that money for uh, devices uh, to help sight impaired? That's a great question. Thanks so much for that. Um, a short answer is yes, there is absolutely movement to reintroduce HR3. So uh, just to back up a little bit, uh, as I mentioned, and as you just referenced, uh, that was introduced by House Democrats last year and passed in the House uh, on, I believe, a strictly party line vote. So no Republicans voted for it in the House. Um, last year, as you probably are all aware, uh, Republicans held the Senate, uh, and so the Senate never took up H.R. 3, never considered it, uh, and so it did sort of, quote-unquote, die uh, after it was passed the House last year. Um, when Congresses turn over, and we've now moved from the 116th Congress into the 117th uh, as of January 5th, um, bills do need to be reintroduced. So right now, there is no legislation, uh, there is no H.R. 3 that exists but they are absolutely working to reintroduce that. So uh, right now, sort of all of the quote unquote oxygen in Congress or all of the attention is focused on uh, confirming the nominees uh, of the Biden administration in the Senate and in the House, uh, it's especially focused on advancing the next COVID uh, relief package, the President Biden's American Rescue Plan. Um, that's being moved through the budget reconciliation process, which we do not have time to get into, but it is very 
in-depth and, and procedurally complicated, but essentially means that, uh, you know, legislation can be passed in the Senate with only 51 votes instead of the typical 60, which is needed. Um, so all of the focus in Congress is really on that massive reconciliation plan, uh, which is not, did not touch any of the policies of HR3 uh, in last Congress touched on. But Democrats have absolutely said that that is uh, continuing a, a huge priority for them, and they are absolutely planning to reintroduce it. The question is, what exactly will that look like? Um, now that there's a different makeup of the Congress and Democrats know that they have control of the Senate, but very narrow control, uh, it's unclear exactly what vehicle they're going to use. So it's possible that they reintroduce another package exactly like H.R. 3, uh, which would have a whole lot of Democratic priorities, uh, would include the drug pricing policies, could even go further, uh, and would likely include the same policies to utilize those savings, uh, including for expanding the Medicare benefit. The problem with doing that, uh, even though they have control of the Senate, is that a bill like that introduced in what's called regular order, the sort of typical process, uh, that would need 60 votes in the Senate. Um, and it's all but a foregone conclusion that there would not be 60 votes in the Senate uh, to pass a version of H.R. 3, uh, because that would require 10 Republican votes. And the Republicans have, as a block, uh, generally opposed the provisions of H.R. 3. Now, of course, there's some areas of bipartisan agreement on drug pricing policies, uh, and you know there may be some areas to work forward on that, um, but there's unlikely to be a, a typical or a reintroduction of HR3 without any major changes that would be able to pass both chambers. The other opportunity is to incorporate certain parts of that package into another budget reconciliation bill, which again would only require 51 votes, uh, which the Democrats have with the tie-breaking vote cast by Vice President Kamala Harris. If they are using that uh, that vehicle, there's a lot of specific sort of procedural constraints around that yeah, and around what types of policies. Now, I will ask my question. If we if we get the, these bills introduced, any strategies on potentially convincing Republicans, which whom we will need in the Senate, even for the Medicare bill? Yes, uh, that's a great question. Um, I think in terms of convincing Republicans, you know, typically disability issues have not always been as much of a partisan issue. Uh, there are plenty of partisan disagreements around disability services, but generally there's been uh, room to find support for Republicans uh, and Democrats on policies to advance coverage for people with disabilities. The question I think is about what I was just discussing with these larger packages, the bigger the packages get, the harder it is to find agreement because there's always you know, a policy here or there that people right. do have a lot of concerns with. So I think uh, in terms of a standalone bill and something like the demonstration project bill that, uh, that ACB has endorsed, you know, that's a narrowly focused bill. And so that kind of legislation is easier to get bipartisan support for. On the flip side of that, because it's narrower, it also means that the sort of impact of it is somewhat more limited. Again, it would certainly be a step forward, but it doesn't solve all of the problems. So in terms of strategies, I think, uh, you know, as these bills go forward, whether it's a, a larger Medicare bill, uh, whether it's more narrow policies, maybe something just focusing on low vision aids, I always think the, the most important way to get uh, either party or members from either party on board is to have that sort of personal touch from the constituents. And that's why we ask advocates like the people on this call to engage with their representatives and sort of share their stories. It's easy to uh, oppose something if you've sort of, you're thinking about it in this, these dry policy senses. Oh, well, maybe I don't 
support an expansion of Medicare because of the cost and I'm worried about the deficit or something like that. But when you're talking to a constituent who has low vision, who's telling you, these are all the things that I, uh, are impacting my ability to function independently that could be aided by having access to these low vision devices, but I can't get it uh, because Medicare won't cover it for me. That's the kind of story that I, typically does really hit home with people. And so why it's so important for advocates to engage with their members uh, in their districts and let them know that this is something that really matters to the people they represent. And it's not just sort of a conceptual idea. It's something that impacts real people's lives. Okay, thank you. Okay, so let me ask a sort of a follow-up in a way to the last couple of questions. Um, is there any possibility of some kind of um, bipartisan Medicare reform bill that might come down the pike that would be a vehicle in which we could include a bill such as our own Medicare low vision demonstration project? It's a great question. Um, I think, and, and let me just back up quickly for, for people who may not be as familiar with the different terms. When we talk about vehicles in Congress, uh, we're talking about any sort of package or legislation that's quote unquote moving through the process. Uh, and typically these kind of bills can be added on to. So you might have a vehicle, which is the COVID relief plan or a vehicle, which is the annual appropriations process, something like that. And that's a way for lots of different policies to get advanced rather than trying to pass each individual bill through the process that takes a long time and, and you run into the partisan issues and, and procedural hurdles, things like that. So in terms of a larger Medicare package, um, certainly Medicare has been a very partisan issue in the past and it's been hard to get bipartisan agreement uh, on major changes to Medicare. However, I think there's a couple of factors that may sort of open up some of the doors for some of that. Uh, first is just the fact that uh, while there's still plenty of partisan bickering in Congress, I think the COVID pandemic has really demonstrated how critical healthcare programs are uh, for all Americans. And especially when you talk about things like being able to live in independently or get out of institutions, especially uh, where we've seen how dangerous it is uh, for people to be in institutions uh, in a situation where there's a pandemic, something like that. Um, I think there's a lot more understanding uh, about how critical these programs are and how there does need to be support for them on a bipartisan basis. So that's one thing that could lead to a little bit more bipartisan cooperation. Although again, we've seen there's still plenty of uh, arguments about the purpose of Medicare and things like that. Uh, the other point, and which is you know not to be on a little bit of a dour note, but the Medicare trust fund is essentially the, the funds that are used to pay for Medicare uh, are in pretty dire straits. Um, the Congressional Budget Office and independent evaluators have uh, announced essentially for many years now that the Medicare Trust Fund is, uh, to use a term of art, going broke. And there need, there's sort of a recognition that within the next several years, there will need to be some major action to do something to sort of fix the Medicare funding problem. Now, uh, you know, those evaluations of exactly when the, when the trust fund will run dry, those change based on the economic conditions and things like that. Uh, and people tend to be pretty nervous about opening up Medicare because, again, it has been such a partisan issue in the past. But I think there's a recognition on both sides of the aisle uh, that there will, at some point in the next five years, probably sooner than that, need to be a, a real hard look in Congress about how to fix Medicare, uh, specifically the funding side. Now, typically when you're talking about trying to save funds, you're, you're looking at cutting services and cutting programs. 
obviously uh, many people, no, no one really wants to cut Medicare. Um, but I think there can be uh, an effort to look at Medicare as a program, sort of open it up in this vehicle with the focus of addressing the funding problem, but that would absolutely be a vehicle in which larger changes to the benefit could happen. Um, you've also heard plenty of discussion, especially during the campaign about some of these single, single payer proposals, uh, things like Medicare for all, uh, Medicare choice for all, things like that. Um, obviously with the very narrow partisan split of, of Congress, it seems unlikely that there's gonna be any push uh, from the Democrats to really advance Medicare for all or something like that. Um, but Medicare has been one of the top, if not the top issue of discussion other than of course COVID. So there will be Medicare packages moving forward. There will be vehicles um, whether or not uh, those will be bipartisan enough to be able to insert major expansions of the program, I think remains to be seen. Uh, but again, I do think there's an understanding in Congress of how important these programs are uh, for the aging population, the disability population, both of which are growing in the United States, uh, as well as just uh, you know beneficiaries across the country. Uh, everyone who needs the support of these healthcare programs, uh, I think there's an understanding of that. So I am optimistic that there will be opportunities to advance uh, you know, expanded Medicare coverage over the next several years. So let me ask a final question, if I might. Um, anybody who's of an age knows the name of Joe Namath, and we see him on TV all the time talking about how this, that, and this, everything from soup to nuts is covered under the Medicare Advantage plan. What are the possibilities that uh, soup to nuts might include low vision aids under Medicare Advantage plan? That's uh, so another great question. And I didn't really touch on Medicare Advantage at all. Um, Medicare Advantage is, uh, for anyone who's not familiar, it's sort of a, a new benefit within Medicare that was created, uh, Medicare Part C, uh, and that essentially allows for private insurance plans to create Medicare benefit plans um, that are you know, paid for through the Medicare program, but are not subject to all of the same requirements. And on the, on the good side, that means that Medicare Advantage plans are able to offer benefits which are not included in the traditional Medicare package. So uh, some vision coverage, some hearing coverage, some dental coverage, uh, those can often be found in Medicare Advantage plans. Again, there's a number of different Medicare plans, there's a, a huge number of different Medicare Advantage plans, and any individual plan is gonna have their own coverage structure and benefit structure. Um, but absolutely, they are able to cover low vision aids. I'm not aware off the top of my head of sort of what uh, what percentage of Medicare Advantage plans cover them, but they certainly can. Now, the question is, will they? Um, I think there needs to be a, you know, a reason for the plans if you're sort of looking at it in the uh, somewhat cynical way in just terms of the cost amount. Um, but there's a great argument to be made that low vision devices, even though you know, it might cost something up front to, to purchase the low vision device and get someone trained up on how to use it, uh, they save money in the long run. Now, I can't cite a study for that because it's very difficult to uh, do sort of scientific analysis of uh, cost savings like that. Um, and specifically, the traditional Medicare program uh, does not look at cost savings in the same way. So traditional Medicare, when they're looking at the cost of a new program, they only look at what are we spending on it. And this is obviously a, a simplification, but they look at what are we spending on it, but they don't look at what are we saving by preventing uh, something else. So for example, you know, we're paying however many, a thousand dollars for some low vision device for someone with low vision, uh, that they look at that as just a thousand dollar cost, but they don't take into account 
um, the savings on if that low vision device helps them avoid a fall in their home that injures them, that sends them to the hospital where they have to spend much more on medical care there. So traditional Medicare does not sort of take into account those cost savings when they're analyzing the cost of things. Medicare Advantage plans uh, are able to do their own analyses and they're not uh, limited by that sort of uh, one way of looking at the cost implications. So we have seen, I think part of the reason why we've seen so many Medicare Advantage plans offer additional benefits is they are really uh, moving towards the, the idea of value-based care, which many people have, have probably heard thrown around a lot, and essentially looking at what can we do, you know, we might spend a little bit up front, but how are we overall uh, saving money on what we're spending on caring for this person to make sure they're healthy overall over the course of their lifetime or of, over the period while we're covering them. So I think there's a an opportunity for Medicare Advantage plans. Um, Medicare Advantage is certainly growing. I believe 34% uh, of the Medicare population is now enrolled in the Medicare Advantage plan, uh, and that's only expected to go up. Um, the only issue, and I think this is something where advocates have, have sort of raised the alarm a little bit, is there's a concern that making Medicare Advantage plans so much uh, cover so much more than the traditional Medicare plans. Um, it's great for the people enrolled in those plans if they continue to have those benefits, but it, it's unfortunate for the people in traditional Medicare that they aren't able to access those. So a lot of the community advocates have always talked about, you know, we should it's great that Medicare Advantage plans have these expanded benefits, and we should make sure that traditional Medicare Advantage uh, Medicare beneficiaries are not sort of, uh, you know having a, a negative experience because they're not able to get those. So that's part of the reason why we've focused so much on traditional Medicare is because we think it's a little bit like a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, but there is certainly opportunity and a little more flexibility with the Medicare Advantage plans uh, to cover all kinds of things, including low vision aids. I want to thank everybody who asked questions and, and who listened. I want to thank um, Lucy for her excellent job as always as our host. And I want to thank Joe Mara for what I, I you know, I've heard a number of uh, presentations on the Medicare Low Vision Aid Demonstration Project. Uh, and I don't think I've heard any that were, was as informative as this one. So I want to thank you for that. I've learned a lot. I hope that others of you have. And with that, we'll uh, turn it back over and get ready for the next uh, session of uh, our legislative seminar. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate you having me and uh, hope you all learned something.